This is Irie. And this is Yavor. And this is MindWise Podcast. Hello and welcome to the MindWise Podcast. We are joined here today by Judith Daniels, who is a new researcher here. And we are very excited to talk to her and to learn more about who she is and what she's doing here. So uh, without talking too much about you, I will let you introduce yourself. All right, so my name is Judith Daniels. I'm from Germany. I just started working here at the beginning of October. So everything is still fresh and new to me. I'm quite excited to be here. It's a nice opportunity. And um, yeah, I'm just trying to find my way around because I think everything's set up a little differently here than what I'm used to. So it's quite interesting to me, actually. And speaking of what you're used to, could you elaborate a little bit more? Where do you come from and mm -hmm. what have you done in the past? Yeah, I'm going to give you a little bit of my, uh, my background, I guess. So I studied psychology at two different German universities. I did my PhD with uh, quite a renowned memory researcher. After that, I started a postdoc in a clinic in Germany, so in a kind of a psychiatric inpatient treatment center for mm -hmm. children and adolescents. And I was involved in a very large study looking at the effectiveness of psychotherapy for children and adolescents yes. as it's usually offered in the German outpatient centers. Mm -hmm. um, that was a very interesting experience, but while, my, while I was working on that project, I also realized I would really like to learn something else. So I was looking for a, re a researcher that would inspire me, where I could learn a new method. I found a researcher called Ruth Lanius. She's actually from Germany, but she's been living in Canada for 30 years. So, mm -hmm. um, And I didn't know how to go about getting into contact with her. So I realized we're both attending the same conference. So I just walk up to her and ask her if I could join her lab for a while. And she said yes. So That's she didn't have a position for me right then, but I thought I have enough money for my former job. And I just asked them if they could let me go. And actually it turned out that they still needed my input for the study. So we made an agreement that I would work a 25% position while being in Canada. So I was kind of working over the internet for my old job in Germany, got mm -hmm. getting paid there while joining the lab of Ruth Lanius in Canada. I went yeah. to actually learn fMRI, so I learned a whole new method that I had heard about before, but I didn't know how to do it, right? It's kind of a method that takes a long time to learn. So um, we shared the same research interests. We were both very interested in looking at a specific phenomenon that's called dissociation. Ruth Lanius is very renowned in studying that in patients suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. So I decided it would be a good opportunity for me to join her lab instead of any other lab that does fMRI to yeah. both learn fMRI as well as learn more about the specific um, population of patients and the specific phenomenon. So I did that for um, two years, just under two years. And then I was approached by a professor from Berlin who wanted to run a study an fMRI study in patients suffering from a dissociative disorder. Two kind of research interests were kind of uh, both met with this project proposal. So I accepted that position, worked there for three years as a, um, it's kind of a postdoc position, it's called Nachwuchsgruppenleiter in German. So kind of means you're the head 
of a whole group. So you're already supervising mm -hmm. two PhD students and research assistants. Okay. And again, that was located in the medical faculty, so in a clinic for a psychiatric um, inpatient treatment for adults this time. I saw that you were involved in a lot of different studies and a lot of different research fields, and you you were involved in neuroimaging and also psychotherapy. But then, uh, what made you interested specifically in dissociative identity disorders? Uh, yeah, I'm not specifically interested in dissociative identity disorder because that's something very specific, right? Where mm -hmm. the main problem that the patients talk about is that they feel they're they're lacking. Um, at least conscious access to lots of memories, right? They have lots of amnesias. And I'm very interested in what I call affective dissociation. So like my background is thinking about consciousness. How So how do we actually become conscious of ourselves? How do mm. we actually build this feeling of identity that's stable over time? I think a really good way to study that is to look at patients who um, kind of suffer from mental disorders that stem from problems with this process right so uh, in berlin for example i particularly looked at a patient group uh, with a disorder called depersonalization disorder it's mm -hmm. also a dissociative disorder but they don't have big amnesias um, but they have very excessive feelings of depersonalization derealization so it was really interesting to find out how they perceive the world and dissociation is uh, involves i guess uh, emotional processing or mm -hmm. is it is it caused during the processing of an emotional event or uh. yeah really good question um i wish we knew mm -hmm. <laughs> so we know what we do know is that when people have um when people experience what we call derealization and depersonalization so maybe just as a recap derealization means you're feeling very much out of touch with your outer surroundings so you feel like everything is fake mm -hmm. uh, you may be on a movie set everything looks like a hologram to you and yeah. it's really just about the experience those patients are very much oriented they know this is real they just say i don't i can't perceive it as real mm -hmm. that's derealization depersonalization is when you feel removed from your own identity so often patients will say i feel like i only consist of kind of clear rational thinking there is no emotions left i often feel like i'm observing myself like, I know I act, but it doesn't feel like I'm actively deciding anything. I, it feels like I'm just observing myself act. And that goes often hand in hand with um, difficulties perceiving body input. So they often don't perceive pain or mm -hmm. they will say it feels like my legs are very short or my one arm is detached from my body. So it's a bit uh, like those, those symptoms sound pretty strange. But they all stem from kind of this lack of integration. So I think that's mm. th the most broad definition of dissociation is a lack of integration of different things. And typically it goes hand in hand with problems in um, consciously experiencing emotions. Mm -hmm. And that's often what actually makes those patients suffer, that they come and say, I can't feel anything. I don't feel anything towards anybody. Mm -hmm. And that's why they come and seek treatment. Is that also why you became interested in PTSD as well? Yeah, it's kind of the other way around. I, um, when I was studying, there was a time when we all got very excited about PTSD because it looked like if you just intervene early enough, you might be able to stop uh, the development of PTSD. Mm -hmm. So back then, the big kind of concept that everybody was excited about was critical incident stress debriefing. And 
there were lots of programs saying, okay, as soon as firefighters come back from their work or police officers, we're just going to do group intervention and make sure they don't really suffer in the long run. But then there were a few more studies done on this and then it turned out actually it sometimes has a negative effect. It's not always positive. Sometimes the positive effect is there, but it's very small. I think nowadays very few people still do that. But that's what kind of got me really excited about PTSD. And the more I looked into it, the more I thought about how the meaning making is changed after trauma and how that relates to our conscious experience of ourselves. And that got me very interested in dissociation, obviously. They <laughs> sometimes link dissociation with uh, exactly some kind of these interventions that are done to patients. And uh, there has been, at least uh, very broadly speaking, criticisms that it might stem from actually the therapeutic intervention. I don't really understand the mechanisms of that, but do you know about these uh, ideas? Uh, iatrogenic processes, I think it's called. Like when, well, when I think dissociative symptoms are induced through the psychotherapy or the therapist. Herself. Yeah, there has been some discussion about um, how truthful the memories of patients are, and that is sometimes linked to dissociation. Mm -hmm. um, so can you induce a false memory in somebody if you question them the wrong way? But I am mostly interested in if dissociation actually predicts if somebody will develop a disorder. So that's in the case, for example, in, in, in post-traumatic stress disorder, we know that if you dissociate during the traumatic incident, the, the technical term is peritraumatic dissociation, mm -hmm. you have a higher risk of developing PTSD. And we don't really know yet why that is. There are a few different models out there, and we're right now trying to test them empirically, but it's not so easy to do, right? Because yes. you're never there during the trauma. So we kind of have to kind of find lots of ways to gain some insight into what's going on. And you need to look for patients who are diagnosed with PTSD, but also show symptoms of dissociation. How many of people who suffer from PTSD have symptoms of dissociation as well? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. So um, we kind of have to differentiate between dissociation that happens during the accident or the trauma so peritraumatic dissociation and dissociation that happens afterwards. So the first one, peritraumatic dissociation, is not a rare thing. And it's not necessarily bad to have that. Lots of theorists say it's probably something that was very useful in our evolution to be able to not feel pain and be able to still run away after you've been attacked, for example. Right? But we also know it's actually a predictor for developing PTSD after trauma. So there's also something about that that's not good. And one of the models that I alluded to before is that it's not the paratraumatic dissociation that is the problem, but maybe you learn to kind of always dissociate when you confront yourself with anything that's related with that memory. Mm -hmm. So if you keep dissociating in the weeks after the incident, so every time you hear this sound or you smell something that's associated with that situation, you dissociate, maybe that stops you from actually processing what happened. And maybe that's the risk factor for why you then develop PTSD. So that's the one thing. And the other thing is there is some indication that it might actually be um, also predictive for not really profiting from psychotherapy. So we know that about a third to maybe 40% of our patients do not profit from our psychotherapies, right? Mm -hmm. We have pretty good interventions for PTSD. They work on average very well, but there's a subset of patients that do not get better. And lots of therapists actually believe that dissociation is one of the reasons why they don't profit from, from because, psychotherapy. Because they cannot kind of integrate the 
traumatic event so i guess yeah i guess the the therapists have kind of an understanding of that you kind of have to have a little bit of arousal you need to be able to feel yourself to process stuff to learn something in psychotherapy mm -hmm. but not too much and there is an understanding that dissociation is either too much or too little arousal and i guess on the surface, it makes a lot of sense to think if you don't even feel yourself as an identity, then it's hard to integrate something into your autobiography, right? Kind of makes sounds like it makes sense. But there is very mixed evidence for that, very little so far. So we're studying that right now. Um, but over the last two, three years, a number of studies have come out at least that look at how many patients have that. And the numbers are between 12 and 30%, depending on the population. So in, in veterans, there was one study where only 12% had dissociative symptoms mm -hmm. with their PTSD. And there's one study where they studied uh, exclusively, I think, female participants who had long chronic sexual childhood abuse. And there were 30% who had dissociation with their PTSD. Okay. And when you look at those studies, you always see that those patients who do dissociate also have kind of generally more severe PTSD, so more intrusions normally. Shall we talk a little bit about how you're finding our department in Kronion? You mentioned that you are here for not that long now, mm -hmm. so you're still kind of learning your way around the department. That's true. What is your impression of Kronion and of the university? Well, the last five years I've, I've lived in Berlin, so it's very different, but I like it very much here. So I am actually every time I cross a bridge and I have to stop because a sailboat wants to come through, mm -hmm. I feel extremely happy. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I'm really looking forward to spring because I think that's the better time yes, of the year yeah, to definitely. enjoy the city and the surroundings. Uh, so yeah, I'm very happy with kind of the setting and um, more specifically concerning my position here. I'm really glad to be back in psychology because I've, as I've mentioned, like the last 10 years I've worked in kind of the medical faculty, yeah. which is very interesting. And I've, I learned a lot of stuff that I think I wouldn't have learned in psychology, but I was very much ready to get back into psychology. So what I'm most excited about is to be now surrounded by so many other colleagues who are really good experimental psychologists, because I think that's going to be um, both fun as well as very good for my research to collaborate with such inspiring colleagues. What would you say are the main differences that you experienced while working, as you said, in the medical, within the medical field, and then now coming back into psychology? Like, what do you think are the main differences? Well, I also have to say that I was in the medical field in Germany, so I can't say if it's the same here, but I, in, in Germany, the medical field is very, very hierarchical. There's good and bad to that. So the good for me was I had a what, what is called a junior professor, so kind of an assistant professorship in a clinic in um, in Germany, and I was very much autonomous. So I I had my own kind of research group, but there's always somebody who's heading the clinic, and they of course decide what you can and what you cannot do involving patients and students. Okay. So there's a bit more hierarchy, I think. What I liked there is the teaching, because um, in Germany, in in this part of medicine where I was, which is called psychosomatics, we teach in really small groups. So I actually have a group of seven students, and I have them for a number of meetings, and they actually have to interview real patients and get supervised by me and get feedback. So I found that very hands-on, and I thought I would have liked that kind of teaching when I was a student. Um, on the other hand, the lectures 
are for huge, huge groups and there's very little interaction. So it's mm -hmm. kind of both extremes. Have you started collaborating with any researchers here and how are you approaching your work mm -hmm. right now? Well, when I, when I relocated to here, I was in the middle of, um, I think, five big studies. So I kind of have a lot of research already running. So mm -hmm. I'm pretty busy with this. But I applied here because I knew some of the researchers, not personally, but from the literature. So I'm very excited about having collaborations within this department here. And already had a lot of chats with colleagues on how exactly we will collaborate because I think there are lots of researchers here where my interest and their interest can very well be um, combined. Yeah, so I'm not act like already running a study, but I'm involved in a couple of master theses and talking about the number of projects we want to do together. What are some of those topics that you are maybe planning to develop later on? Generally, for me, my outlook is I would very much like to focus on this topic of dissociation, but use as many different methods as I can think of. Right now, I'm also running two studies where we use um, smartphone apps uh, because we know from those statistics there is this subset of patients that will experience dissociation, but we have no idea what that means in their day-to-day -day life. So what we know is that they like you know, they mark a five on a questionnaire and they say often. Yeah. But what does that actually mean? How long? How often? Can they actually interrupt it once they become aware of it? What's the best um, strategy to interrupt it? Can they preempt it? Like, do they feel it coming and can still do something to stop it from happening? We don't know those things. So um, I thought a study that's very ecologically valid might be helpful. So that's what I'm doing. It's going to be definitely interesting to see how different people perceive dissociation. As you mentioned, not all dissociative moments or episodes are negative in a way, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and the problem, uh, you will probably understand this as you're in your third year, the problem is how do you assess it? You assess it with a questionnaire. Yeah. How was that questionnaire developed? Well, that's the interesting part. There is basically, well, there are a few, but there's basically one questionnaire that's used around the world, but it hasn't been validated that well. So what can you actually use as a criterion to validate this? My problem with this questionnaire is that we're basically asking patients, how much do you not feel something? Basically, asking them, assume how much you think you should feel and then tell me how much is that reduced. That's a very roundabout way of assessing something. And one, for example, much more direct way is something we did in one study, and I'm probably going to replicate that here outside of the scanner, is we combined um, a heat pad. So that's a little instrument that you can attach to the skin and it will go to a set diff um, temperature. And you can set the temperature just below the threshold for pain, so you're gonna experience it at warmth, mm -hmm. or you can set it one degree above the th threshold of pain. So you're gonna, it's not terrible, but you, you feel it's, it's not nice anymore, it's hot. Mm -hmm. And we combine that with um, having the patients think about the trauma or think about something neutral. And what we saw is that their pain threshold goes way down. So that's a very good experimental way of actually assessing one symptom of dissociation, which is not perceiving pain, right? Dissociative analgesia, we call that. And I think we have to kind of validate all our questionnaires against something like this and do this with as many different methods as we can because this phenomenon is so evasive that it's hard to, you know, it's hard to measure. It's not like blood pressure. You can't just be sure that's what it is. 
I, I saw you also were interested in the default mode network mm -hmm. and this really seems like uh, something very related to the, mm -hmm. the dissociation basically mm -hmm. um, because at least from how I understand it it's the time when you are perhaps most most disconnected from active sensory inputs mm -hmm. not paying attention to the outer world but focusing on your thoughts uh, mm -hmm. what can you tell us about your research in that area yeah so we should probably tell listeners what the default mode network is because that's yeah. kind of a bit tricky to understand so i'm gonna elaborate a little bit on that yeah, that's do. okay okay i'm gonna say about till about 10 years ago when we did mri studies so functional mri studies we always compare two things in MRI. It's kind of a subtraction method, right? We have one condition, you subtract the other one from that. And we kind of always assume that if, the, if you don't ask the brain to do something, it does nothing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, as soon as you stop and think about that for a second, you will realize, of course, that's not your experience, right? Yeah. Your brain always does something. Actually, I think Buddhists meditate for hours and hours to try to get a moment where your brain does not do anything. What people then did is they actually looked at all those fMRI data and said, what does the brain do when we don't ask it to do something? And it turns out there's this huge network. It kind of spans big parts of your brain um, that activates when what they now call when you let your mind wander, mind wandering, idling. And when I say network, what I mean by that is that it's not so much that different brain regions activate a lot or little. But forming a network goes via, you could think of it like a correlation. So different brain regions have the same, same pattern of activation and deactivation over time. So the same fluctuation. And that mm. is kind of what binds different brain structures together into one functional network. So they found this, what they now call default mode network. And of course, then the question is, all right, what does the brain do when we don't ask it in to do anything specific? And it's tricky because Imagine I ask you to lie in the scanner for 10 minutes and I tell you, please look at this fi fixation cross or close your eyes and let your mind wander. Now, if I ask you beforehand, please tell me afterwards what you did in your brain, you're going to kind of monitor what you're thinking. I don't want you to do that because that's a mm. task, right? Mm -hmm. If I don't ask you to monitor that, there's a high chance that after 10 minutes, you're not really very well able to tell me what you did. You might remember, oh, I remember for a time I thought about what I want for my Christmas present. I thought about the shopping I still had to do, but the other eight minutes, it's kind of, you're kind of lost in thought. It's the best way to assess the default mode network, but also you get very vague information of what those people did. Right? So instead, people then set out and looked at the different brain structures that are part of the default mode network and looked at what those structures normally do when they activate. And it turns out there's a lot has a lot of to do with autobiographic memory and feeling familiar, so familiarity, and processing the self, so that the general term is self-related thinking. So that's very closely related to identity and becoming consciously aware of something. And that's why I got interested in this network. Yeah. And then there were a few studies out that showed that there's actually only one study in acutely traumatized subjects where they showed that integration of the amygdala so the kind of the fire alarm emotion process of our brain into this predicts who will have ptsd 12 weeks later has never been replicated so we'll have to wait for that and there are a number of studies like this where we see it actually relates very well to mental disorders also in anxiety and depression we see differences in this default mode network i think the same applies to to our day-to-day -day life so if you think about it 
of course we have roles, right? You probably feel different with me right now in this room than you feel at home with your mom or out with your friends at a bar. So you have different kind of social selves. But you always go through the world feeling like you are one person. You're still the same person as yesterday with your mom and tonight with your friends. And how do you bind those things together? Right? And um, that's something that our organism co does constantly without our actively being aware of that. Yeah. So I think all those processes that, that are kind of um, underlying our conscious experience probably have to work together during sleep and during daytime. And I think dissociation is probably a question of uh, degree. We know, for example, if you're really jet-lagged, like seriously jet-lagged, lots of people feel somewhat dissociated. Yeah. Well, it doesn't have negative consequences. Doesn't Sometimes it feels actually a little bit good. Um, lots of patients actually feel that it's kind of, it feels nice to dissociate because then I don't have to feel what otherwise I would have to feel related to the trauma. But we know it's not good for them. So there's, uh, I think, a question of degree here. Um, we are slowly running out of time. So <laughs> maybe um, we could talk a little bit about your future, perhaps, here in Groningen mm -hmm. and what you're thinking of doing and uh, also kind of linking it to the Rosalind Franklin mm -hmm. Fellowship. Could you maybe say something about that? And what are you supposed to do as a Rosalind Fra Franklin <laughs> Fellow? Yeah, I'm just trying to find out. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so there's this um, this Rosalind Franklin Fellowship program. So there are a number of Rosalind Franklin Fellows every year. What that means is that I get a contract that comes with a PhD position and with slightly slightly reduced teaching load. So I have mm -hmm. a little bit more time for research. Mm -hmm. I'm probably going to use this PhD position to find somebody who will run an fMRI study here in a acutely traumatized subject to follow them over time for a long time to see how dissociation plays into their development. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to kind of substitute this one research with lots of little side projects. So I'm going to have lots of studies looking at the psychophysiology of dissociation. And again, we don't really know yet if, if you make somebody who's healthy dissociate, if that's the same thing as what happens in patients. We don't know if that's the same thing. Right? We're probably going to look at that. We're going to look at the subjective experience of patients who have that in their day-to-day -day life. And we're also looking at uh, psychotherapeutic interventions, um, I'm following a neuroscientific model, uh, my understanding of what is going on in the brain to produce this state, to see if we can change that with interventions like biofeedback or psychotherapeutic interventions. Mm -hmm. So I think there's going to be a whole set of little research projects. Um, I'm an optimistic person, so I'm going to say I hope that in 10 years we know a little bit more yeah. about this whole phenomenon. <laughs> This podcast was a production of Mindvoice for the Department of Psychology at the University of Groningen.